Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 10. We've been going through the Gospel of John chapter by chapter, and tonight we want to get to uh, the 10th chapter. Um, John chapter 10 has a lot of um, outstanding individual principles that you could pull out and, and uh, identify individually and, and preach a sermon about any, any and every one of those. But remember that John is writing a story. He's, um, uh, he's not trying to catalog things like Matthew did and Luke did. He's just writing a story. And as such, he gives us some information that some of the other gospel writers do not give us. He omits some of the things that they uh, include in their gospels because John is the last gospel writer. He knows what's already out there. He knows the information that's there. So it's not like he's trying to duplicate anything that people already have record of. But in order to understand the context of the story of John chapter 10, we're going to have to back up to John chapter 9 because it's based completely, uh, at least the first half of the chapter, is based completely on the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. Now, without going back and rereading the whole thing, I trust that uh, that you remember enough about the story to so that we can just kind of hit the high spots. Jesus is uh, leaving the temple. And he sees a blind man. The, the disciples draw his attention to him. Said, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither one. He said, but my job is to do the works of God who sent me. I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. Well, what works did he do? He healed the man. He spit on the ground, made clay of the spittle, told him to wash off in the pool of Siloam. And he came again seeing. Now, this created quite a stir in the temple when he returned. Because uh, some people are, are interested and want to know what happened. He said, a man named Jesus told me to wash, my eyes, wash this stuff out of my eyes and I was healed. But then the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders get involved. And now they want to try to trap him. They want information, but they want it their way. And so this guy gets into a debate with them. They, the Pharisees even called their, uh, his parents trying to, to get them uh, working on, their, on uh, their side, the religious leader's side, against their own son. But it says that the parents were afraid that they'd be cast out or excommunicated from the synagogue, from the temple. So they, they wouldn't have anything to do with it. They said, just ask him. So it finally boils down to this. The Pharisees say, well, you need to glorify God for this because Jesus is a sinner. Don't think that Jesus had anything to do with this because he's just a sinner. God's the one you need to glorify. And this guy, having little, if any, information other than Jesus did this for him, really stands up to them. Let me, I'm going to pick up the... Uh, um, I'm going to pick up the story in verse 29 and just read through some real quickly. This is the Pharisees speaking. They said, we know that God's spoken to Moses. As for this fellow, they've already claimed that they're Moses' disciples. He says, as for this fellow, meaning Jesus, we don't know where, from whence he is. In other words, we don't know where he came from. We know where Moses came from, meaning what Moses said, where that came from. But we don't know where this guy came from or where he gets what he says or does. And the man answered and said unto him, why, herein is a marvelous thing. I love that he's mocking them. They're trying to ridicule. They're trying to act like they're the elite and the intellectuals and nobody can hold a candle to anything they say. And this guy is just a common man. He's mocking them. He said, well, that's a marvelous thing that you know not from whence he is or where he's come from. And yet he has opened my eyes. Now, we know that God hears not sinners. But if any man, any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began... Was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Folks, that's pretty good theology. Well, the Pharisees said, you know, you're right. We've been mistaken about this. We need to change our attitude. 
No, not exactly. Verse 34, they answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins. They don't address what he said to be right or wrong because they can't argue with what he said. He said, they said, you were altogether born in sins and do you try to teach us? Don't you understand? We're the teachers. That means everything we say is right. So if you disagree with us, you can't be right because we're the ones that are always right. Boy, that's a real tenable position, isn't it? Then it says in the last part of verse 34, and this is the key to everything that you need to know about the first half of John chapter 10. And then they cast him out. They excommunicated him. They threw him out of the synagogue, out of the temple. Well, that would seem to be the end of this guy. The parents were certainly afraid of that. If you can't go to the temple, you can't worship God. You, you're, you're out of God's blessings because you can't keep the sacrifices. You can't do the things according to the law of Moses that you're supposed to, right? Not so much. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Do you believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. I want you to notice he had to go outside of the temple to find Jesus. Keep that in mind. That will be an important point in John chapter 10. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see. And that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are you, are we blind too? You talking about us being blind? And Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. In other words, it would be an honest mistake if you really didn't see. But now you say we see. You claim to be the ones that have all the right information. You claim to be the ones that are the teachers. You claim to be the ones that are accurate in your doctrine and in your teaching. Now you say, we see, therefore, your sin remaineth. Now Jesus is talking to the same people in John chapter 10. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the Jews, the religious leaders. Now notice what he begins to say in context with them having thrown the, uh, the blind man, the old blind man, the guy that can now see, the man that was healed, how they kicked him out of the temple. That's what all this is about in John chapter 10. He starts in verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, let me read down through verse 5 and then we'll stop for comments, or verse 6, I guess. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now, I want you to notice what he's saying. Well, I said I was going to read through this, didn't I? Rick, can I have a chair? Can you bring me a chair? Is it okay for you guys if I sit down and teach? Roll and try one from that end. There we go. It just takes muscles. That's all it takes. I'll put it up here in front so everybody can see. So let me start reading again, verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth into the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he put forth his own sheep, he goes forth before them, and his sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Can you see this? Can you see what he's saying? Now, a lot of times people get tripped up. I can't do this. I thought I could, but I can't do this. i got to walk. Notice in verse 6, the parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were, 
which he spake unto them. Jesus is talking about a relationship. He's talking about a relationship that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, have with the, with the, uh, with the people. He's saying, just like I have done something good for this man and healed him, you guys are thieves and robbers. You've got an, uh, a false teacher relationship with these people, the Jews, the people you're supposed to be caring for. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the Bible talks about... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble getting comfortable here. Throughout the Old Testament, the Bible talks about shepherds. It talks about God setting up shepherds for his people. It talks about uh, the Lord is our shepherd and things along those lines. Jesus is very simply saying that they are false teachers, and as such, they're considered by God to be thieves and robbers. Now, when he says, uh, he that enters in by any other way other than the door is, uh, is a thief and a robber, he's talking about the Pharisees. What's the door? Well, let's uh, explain what the, uh, the sheepfold is. The sheepfold is something that was, uh, that was very well known, very well understood in uh, the uh, rural towns and villages. In, uh, I'm not going to need that, Paul. In the, uh, the rural towns and villages, the outlying villages in, in uh, Judea. Now, when, uh, when Jesus is talking about the sheepfold, he's talking about something that everybody understands. And here's how it worked. Judea was infested with wild beasts and animals. So the shepherds had to have some way to protect their flocks at night. And so uh, in these villages, they would create this thing called a sheepfold. This sheepfold would have a fence around it anywhere from 10 to 12 feet high. Now, all the shepherds would bring their sheep into the sheepfold to be watched after and guarded during the nighttime. The person that was hired to guard them was the porter. So when Jesus is talking about the door of the sheepfold, he's talking about the door, the entrance into the place where God's sheep are kept and maintained. But what's the sheepfold? Some people say the sheepfold is heaven. Well, robbers don't break into heaven. Thieves and robbers don't have anything to do with heaven. Some people say the sheepfold is the church. But notice it says that the shepherd leads them out of the sheepfold. He calls them and leads them out of the sheepfold. Well, Jesus is never going to lead you out of the church. So what's the sheepfold? It can't be heaven and it can't be the church. So what is the sheepfold? The sheepfold is Judaism. And Jesus is very simply saying that the door to the sheepfold, the door to Judaism, is everything that the Holy Ghost has provided for the children of Israel to point to the Messiah, the good shepherd. And so he says anybody that enters in by the door, he's the shepherd. Now what would happen is at the end of the day or at the end of the night... The porter, the doorkeeper, and porter just means doorkeeper, the porter would uh, would be there when the shepherds came to get their sheep. And each of the shepherds would come, and they would come to the door of the sheepfold, and they would call their own sheep by name. And those sheep would, because they know, they recognize the name, the uh, voice of their shepherd, they would come out, and he would lead their flock away to pasture. So the porter couldn't be a shepherd himself. Because if the porter was a shepherd, then all his sheep would spend their, spend their time around him, gathered around him, and he wouldn't be able to guard the sheepfold effectively. So the porter has got to be that which protects the people of God while they were in Judaism, which basically is, ultimately is the Holy Spirit. Now, how did the Holy Spirit provide an entrance into Judaism for the Messiah? Through the prophets. Moses talked about him, Isaiah talked about him, Jeremiah talked about him, Zechariah talked about him, a lot of the Old Testament prophets. David spoke of the Messiah. A lot of the Old Testament prophets spoke of the Messiah and his coming, and all those prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus. Furthermore, John the Baptist 
was directed and and, uh, commissioned by the Holy Spirit to herald or introduce Jesus, the shepherd, to the sheep. He holds a position as the porter too. What Jesus is saying is, I came in legitimately. You guys have not. You guys have tried to come over the wall to gain some place with the sheep, the people of God of the Old Testament. So he said to, to, uh, let me read through this again. He said, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. That's the Pharisees. They're supposed to be shepherds, but they're not operating with care or concern for the people of God. But he that enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is going to call himself the good shepherd in just a few verses. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. How many times do we see in the Bible where Jesus sought somebody out, called them by name, and then ministered to them? Zacchaeus, he looked up into the tree and said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to eat at your house today. He called him by name. Even Mary, after Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus is talking to her. She thinks he's the gardener. She thinks he's the keeper of of the cemetery, the tomb area. But when he calls her by name, Then she recognizes him, falls down at his feet to worship him. So it says he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. What's he leading them out of? What's Jesus leading them out of? He's leading them out of Judaism. Which is exactly what happened in John chapter 9 with the blind man. Jesus got the blind man healed. The thieves and the robbers that are supposed to be caring for the people kick him out of the temple. And outside of the temple, he finds Jesus and confesses him as the Messiah. Can you see what he's saying? That's what all of chapter, or all of the first half at least of chapter 10 is about. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice and a stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him for they know not the voice of strangers. In other words, he's saying there's a relationship with the shepherd outside of Judaism. The parable, this parable spoke Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they, they were, which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now here's where people get confused about John chapter 10. Jesus talks about three different doors. And most people read through this and think he's talking about the same thing. He says the door of the sheepfold is the door of the sheep. No, it's not. He says three different doors. He says there's the door of the sheepfold. That was the entrance that the Holy Ghost had made for him through the Old Testament prophecies that he fulfilled. He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was circumcised on the eighth day. All the Old Testament scriptures about him were fulfilled. He entered into where the people of God were. He first went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, lost sheep of the house of Israel, not the lost sheep which are the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he came first to the Jews, right? But now he's talking about a second door. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Now he's talking about a different door. I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. Well, he can't be talking about the Old Testament prophets that followed God. He can't be talking about Moses and Jeremiah and David and those guys. Who's he talking about? He's still talking about the Pharisees. All of those Pharisees, the religious leaders that came before me, are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. Now, why does he use thieves and robbers? The word thief means a deceiver, and the word robber means one who uses violence. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says about the Pharisees. It says about how they killed the Old Testament prophets. How they wouldn't believe the Old Testament prophets, but instead had them stoned, had them killed. They used violence against them, didn't they? 
So he says, all those that came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. By the way, let me, uh, uh, let me read you a, a verse of scripture over in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13. Let me show you something that he said in another place that Matthew records for us about the Pharisees. Here's why Jesus had such a hard time with what these guys were doing and why they were doing it. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Jesus says, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer them that are entering to go in. In other words, he's saying about the Pharisees, his attitude toward the Pharisees is the reason you're thieves and robbers is you won't go into the kingdom of God and you don't let anybody else go in either. Yet you're the ones that set yourselves up as the ones that know all about the kingdom of God. Yet you're leading people astray and keeping them from going into the blessings of God. So can you see why Jesus is saying what he's saying? Back to John chapter 10. Verse 8 again, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So where he says, I'm the door of the sheep, first of all, uh, when he says the door of the the, uh, sheepfold, he's talking about the Old Testament prophecies that he fulfilled. When he talks in verse 7 about being the door of the sheep, he's saying, I'm the door that you exit Judaism through. I'm the way. I'm not a door, I'm the door. I'm the door of the sheep. He contrasts himself as the good shepherd with the thieves and the robbers. Now in verse 9, he's saying, I'm the door of salvation. Three different doors. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, notice it's not your choice, it's God's calling. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Now folks, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees that have tried several times to kill him and will a little little bit later on in this chapter. If any man come by me, enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and shall find pasture. Now, what does he mean? Going in and out is uh, is a reference to having complete freedom. The The Jews, the religious leaders, never provided freedom for the people. They didn't give them any sense of freedom whatsoever. It was always rules. You're doing wrong. There's no way you can do right. You need us because you're always messing up. But where he talks about shall go in and out, he's talking about having freedom. There's freedom in Jesus, not in Judaism or any other religion for that matter. Then when he says find pasture, he's talking about not only provision, but he's talking about rest. It's a perfect picture of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside the still waters, makes me lie down in green pastures. What's he talking about? He's talking about the same things that they know David referred to about the Messiah. Now in verse 10, notice he changes who he's talking about. He says, the thief. Before he's been talking about thieves and robbers, plural. Now he talks about the thief, singular. He says, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the devil. Now he's already said in John chapter 8 that they are of their father, the devil. Same group of people, just a different point in time. He said, you're of your father, the devil. So the thieves and the robbers are acting just like their father. But here he's talking about Satan. He said, the thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Here's deception. Here's destruction. Violence. Same things that the the Pharisees are doing. In other words, he's saying he's the force behind it. But I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Notice Jesus is saying that he is the way of salvation. 
saying plainly to the Jews, if any man come through me, by me, through the door. Now, they don't understand he's talking about leaving Judaism. Verse 6 just told us they didn't understand the parable that he was talking about leaving the sheepfold. They hadn't figured it out. But just like with the blind man, when he was excommunicated from the temple, that's when he found Jesus as the Messiah. So he says, the thief comes not but for to kill, steal, and destroy. That's the devil's job description. Anything that steals, anything that kills, anything that destroys is of the devil, not God. Jesus contrasts himself with killing, stealing, and destroying. He said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So he's saying through him is salvation and through him is a life, abundant life. How can Jesus give anybody salvation? Think about what the Pharisees, their position is. Their position is Jesus is a fake pretending to be the Messiah. Yet Jesus is saying plainly, I'm the way of salvation, and through me somebody can have abundant life. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Boy, now here's a contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't give themselves for anybody. You disagree with the Pharisees, they'll kick you out of the temple. But now Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Now, folks, Psalm 23 is a very, very well-known scripture, especially among the Jewish and religious leaders. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, knowing that Israel has been identified, or the shepherd of Israel has been identified all throughout the Old Testament scriptures as God himself, he's identifying himself with God. I am the good shepherd. I'm the Psalm 23, one guy. I am the good shepherd. What does he say? He says, I lay down my life for my sheep. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The Ethiopian version says, the good shepherd gives his life as a redemption for the sheep. I like that. But, verse 12, he that is a hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the porter is a hireling. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy. But like I said before, the porter couldn't be a shepherd because then his sheep would spend all this time around him and he wouldn't be able to take care of everybody else's flocks. So the porter could not be and was never a shepherd himself. At least not a shepherd that had sheep in the sheepfold. So here where he says the hireling, he's talking about somebody that's only in it for the money. Now the porter was certainly in it for the money, but he had to care for the sheep so that he would protect them well. This is somebody he's talking about that doesn't care about the sheep because they have no interest in the sheep. The sheep are not their own. They have no interest. They have no interest in the people whose sheep, who, uh, who are shepherds of these sheep. They are only in it for the money. And therefore, when they see the wolf coming, they flee. Now, it's interesting that the Bible says that when the wolf comes, they flee. Notice verse 12 again. They see the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them. And scatters the sheep. Notice it does not say the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. It says the wolf catches them. Them who? The hireling. And scatters the sheep. Now who's the wolf? Well, we could say the wolf is the devil. I mean, that'd be a good picture. The wolf's always got to be the devil, right? But Jesus has just said this, that they're of their father, the devil. They're not going to run when the devil comes. They're used to him. They're used to following his influence. So who's the wolf? The wolf is someone or something that separates the hireling from his opportunity to make money because that's all he cares about. He's a mercenary. 
All he cares about in the whole world is making money off of what he's hired to do. So what is it that keeps him from making money? Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, he's saying the circumstances, the crisis that will separate you from your positions where you're earning your money as the leaders of Israel are the things that are going to cause you to flee. And the sheep will be scattered. Where are they going to be scattered to? They're going to be scattered through the four winds. That's exactly what happens in John, in, uh, AD chapter, uh, AD 70 when Jerusalem is destroyed. The priesthood is gone. There are no Pharisees and Sadducees after that. Nobody's even, if, if they kept up the sect and the doctrine and so forth, they wouldn't even admit it because they're hunted down. So there's something coming that's going to separate them from their position of honor that they claimed over the people, but not because they cared about the people. Verse 13, the hireling fleeth because he is a hireling and careth not for the sheep. Here's the contrast again. Jesus is talking about relationship. I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known of mine. As the father knoweth me, even so know I the father and even lay my, lay my life down for the sheep. Verse 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. What's he talking about now? He's talking to the Jews saying, and there'll be Gentiles too. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also must I bring, or I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my Father. What's he saying? He just said that he's the door to salvation. He just said that he is the key to life. He gives life more abundantly. Now he's saying, I have power over life and death. Folks, Jesus is making some obvious, clear statements that you cannot in any way mistake that he is claiming that he has God's power on the earth. And he even credits it as having been given to him by the Father. Can you see it? Keep that in mind. Verse 19, there was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for or because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Don't listen to him anymore. He's crazy. But others said, I think it's interesting that many, meaning the majority, or more of them said that Jesus was crazy, then were affected and said this. Others said, these are not the words of him that hath the devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? So apparently, they're thinking the same thing that the man, the blind man that was healed in John chapter 9 was thinking when he says, only God himself can do this. Somebody that God's not with can't do this kind of work. They've been affected by the miracle. Verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem in the feast of the dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in Solomon's porch. Now, it tells us that uh, it gives us a time frame, gives us a time period of when some of these things are happening. The Feast of Dedication is what we know of now or what is called now Hanukkah. This is the only time in the scripture that it's referred to. And uh, for those of you that don't know, let me give you a little bit of background of what happened. When uh, Alexander the Great ruled the world, it was about 330 uh, B.C., something like that. And uh, then when he died, there were four of his generals that split up his territory literally split up the known world. Israel was right in the middle of two different groups, the Ptolemies and the Seleucidans. I don't know if I'm saying them right, but anyway, 
One was in Egypt. The Ptolemies were in Egypt, had control of the, the territory of Egypt. And uh, the Seleucidans had um, uh, Syria. And so Israel's right in the middle of them, so it's kind of a tug of war back and forth. Finally, the ones that, uh, that were in Syria overtook Israel, and they um, instituted Hellenistic Greek-type uh, worship in the temple. They created a, a statue of Zeus. They uh, offered a, uh, on the, as a sacrifice on the altar in, uh, in the temple uh, a pig. I mean, they did everything they could to, uh, to spit in the eye of Israel and their religious practices and worship. And finally, they got to the point where they said, you're going to have to worship all of these uh, pagan gods and, you know, all the Greek mythology type stuff that, where the gods are mentioned. You're going to have to start worshiping them and sacrificing to them and get rid of this reading of the Torah, get rid of offering sacrifices unto, to uh, uh, Jehovah and, and all this other kind of stuff that's unique to you people, or else you're going to die. We're going to kill you. We're just going to conquer, just wipe out everybody in the land. We'll take over the land with our own people. Well, there was a, there was a godly priest that was left. His name was Matthias. And um, the Seleucidans, um, I'm not saying that right. I don't know what the word is. But anyway, the ones that were from Syria, they came and they picked him. They said, all right, you're a priest. We're going to let you lead in this worship of Greek gods. Well, he had five sons. This guy had five sons. And they said, that's enough. And so these six, Matthias and all of his five sons, one of them was Judas, rose up. And they're the, they're, Judas was the one that kind of became the ringleader. They fought against the soldiers, won a miraculous victory, and retook the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, Judas was the first one called a Maccabee. Maccabee means hammer. Have you, any of you ever heard of the Maccabees? Well, that's where that came from. It's uh, Judas was the first one considered to be or called a Maccabee because he was a hammer in the hand of God to defeat the enemies of Israel. Now, the, the Hanukkah story is uh, interesting because the, the story goes when they uh, uh, t- retook the temple, they had to uh, all the, the elements and the instruments had been defiled and the menorah was broken. The menorah is the, the uh, seven uh, branch candlestick type thing. You've seen pictures of, so they had to repair that, and and there was no uh, there was no oil to to put in it to to make it work and and glow and stuff like that like it was supposed to, and that thing's supposed to work every day. It's supposed to be lit all the time. So when they retook the temple, they refashioned real quickly the menorah, but they didn't have enough oil except for for one day, and it takes eight days to make the oil in a certain way that you have to for it. So that one day's supply of oil lasted all eight days. And that's the that's the, the the miracle of Hanukkah that uh, many of the Jewish families even celebrate today. Well, that's the feast of dedication. That's the time that it took place. It's in December each year. Now, John is telling us that because here's Jesus dedicating himself for the very purpose that he's just identified, and that is to lay down his life for the sheep. Okay, are you with me? So now he's in Solomon's porch. He's walking in Solomon's porch. This is the same place in Acts chapter 3 where the man that's healed at the beautiful gate is going to be uh, held together and, and thousands of people get saved when Peter preaches. So it says, And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, Get this question. After everything he's just said, after all the principles he's just identified, after showing or claiming that he had power to give eternal life, that he was the door of salvation, that he could have the power, that he did have the power of life and death to lay down his life and take it back up because God gave it to him. Here's their question. They came to him and they said unto him, how long do you make us doubt? 
If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, folks, here's why the Bible says that this was a feast of dedication. Because Jesus is dedicating himself to reveal to Israel who he is. And no matter what he does, as far as miracles are concerned, no matter what words he says, they refuse to accept it. Jesus has dedicated himself as the temple of God. So Jesus answers and says, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now, when did he tell them? John chapter 8, verses 42 through 47, Jesus says plainly. Maybe I ought to read some of this. Let me read what he says. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 42, it says, Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Well, who would he be if he came from God other than the Messiah, other than the Christ? He's telling them. He's already told them plainly. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Cannot, not will not, cannot. In other words, their choice to be blind has overridden everything else. It has prevented them from being able to hear and accept the truth. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your fathers you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Well, then what are they going to be doing? They're going to be liars, too. They're going to be telling lies, too. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Their whole thing is Jesus is a sinner. Where's my sin? And if I don't have sin, why don't you believe what I'm telling you? He that is of God heareth God's words. You, therefore, hear them not because you are not of God. Now they're saying, how long do you make us doubt? This is your fault. Yeah, okay, you healed the blind man, but prove it. Prove that you're sent from God. Prove that you're the Messiah. And, folks, this is how religion does. So many times people say, if I could just see a miracle, I'd believe. No, they wouldn't. They'd explain away whatever miracle they saw. Or they'd say, well, all right, we're not sure about that one. Show us another one. It always becomes something else. So Jesus says, I've told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not because you are not of my sheep as I said unto you. That goes back to not all of Israel were considered God's sheep. Considered God's sheep. Paul talks about this when he writes to both the Romans and the, the uh, Corinthians. Uh, in Romans chapter 9, I believe it is, he says, not all Israel is Israel. Now, that seems like a strange and confusing statement. What's he saying? He's saying not all the natural descendants of Abraham are the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham is to the ones to whom the promise was made. In other words, those who would be willing to follow the voice of Jesus, the Messiah, who legally entered into Judaism outside of Judaism to find eternal life. Because eternal life is not to be found in, Ju in Judaism. You believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Notice that. My sheep follow me. Where are they going to follow him? Outside of Judaism. Outside of temple worship. And I give unto them eternal life. Now, notice here's another statement that he makes that shows his deity. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me, or gave them to me, 
is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, folks, verse 30 is a terrible translation. Terrible translation. Because you'll notice if you've got a King James that says, I and my Father, the word my is in italics. It's not my, it's a definitive article, the. He's saying, I and the Father are one. See, if he says, I and my Father are one, they're going to say, well, who's your Father? You're claiming to be one with your father. But when he says, I am the father, he's talking about God and everybody knows it. He's saying, I'm equal with God. Now, what did they challenge him? They said, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. How much plainer can you get than that? He's saying, I'm one with Jehovah. Now, is there any questions that they understood what he's saying? Verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They know what he said. Now, their challenge was, if you're the Christ, show us plainly. Make it plain to us. He just did. First of all, he said, I have before and you wouldn't believe me, but here we go again. He's identified about six different characteristics of deity. And finally tops it off with saying, I and the father. One of the Jews favorite scriptures are, is, is there is one God. There is one God. He is one. So when Jesus says, I and the father are one, he's saying, I am God. That's when they took up stones to kill him. So Jesus says, answers them, many good works have I showed you from my father. Which of those works do you stone me? For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou being a man makest thyself God. Now you're going to have to hold your finger here and turn back with me to to, uh, Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is what Jesus refers to and quotes. As his answer. But most people aren't familiar with Psalm 82. And so it's important for you to get the uh, import of what he's saying and how what he's saying about it. Psalm 82 is pretty short. So I'll just read the whole thing. Verse 1. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course or moved. I have said, you are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Now, the word, uh, there's a couple of different words here that are important for you to see. In verse 1, the word mighty, the word gods, and in verse 8, O God, those three words, mighty gods and gods, is the Hebrew word for Elohim. It's the word that's translated, it's the word that's used in the original text in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26, where God said, let us make man in our own image. And Elohim said, let us make man in our own image. God says to Jesus and the Holy Ghost, let's make man in our own image. It's a, it's a definitive term for the Trinity. So here it says, God judges among the mighty. What he's talking about is, he's talking about those who are either making up the Trinity or those who are made in the image of God. Here's the problem. The problem is the Jews don't accept that. Rabbis have taught from the time David said this, 
or wrote this, or, or Asaph, whoever it was, maybe it was a psalm of Asaph, whoever it was that came up with this, they said this. And Jesus is going with their interpretation or their understanding of the psalm, not the real meaning. They said that this is talking about magistrates and judges. David is, or whoever writes the psalm, is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost is saying, defend the fatherless. Take care of the poor. Judge righteously because when you give God, when you give out judgments that are in line with God's mercy and God's intent, it's the same as God speaking himself and nobody can change it. That's what the Jews accept Psalm 82 to mean. I believe it means a lot more than that. Nevertheless, back to John chapter 10. Jesus says, after they said, that Jesus blasphemed and made himself a God, or made himself God, not a God, but God. Jesus answered them. I'm going to read down through verse 38. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and that I am in him. There's two parts to Jesus' answer. The first thing is Jesus says, wait a minute. You believe that the book of Psalms was inspired by God, written by God himself, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, in the book that you believe to be except to be written by and inspired by God, it says in Psalm 82, of those who are commissioned by God as magistrates, as local magistrates, local lawgivers, you said the Bible says, and it can't change, the scripture cannot be broken, it says that when someone judges according to righteous judgment, they are as gods themselves. Yet you say of me, who's been given a lot better position. A lot more important position where the children of Israel and the nation of Israel are concerned. Someone that's been sanctified by the Father himself. You say to me that I can't say that I am the Son of God? Your magistrates use Psalm 82 to claim that they are sons of God as the basis for their judgment. But your Messiah can't say that he's the Son of God? Can you see what he's saying? And here's the second part. He goes further. Verse 36, say ye of him who the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. Verse 37, if I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. In other words, he's saying, if it's just me saying I'm the Son of God without any evidence, don't believe it. But look at the blind man that was just healed. Look at all the other works and miracles and healings that you've seen. If I do the works of my Father, in other words, though you believe not me, Believe the works. What he's saying is, look, I get it. You don't want me to be the Messiah. I get that. You're afraid of what that's going to mean for you and your position and all the things that you've built for yourself. I get that. But you can't deny the works. Even if you don't believe me, even if you don't want to accept the things that I'm saying, believe the works. That you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Verse 39, therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hands. Now, verses 40 through 42 are a real key in, uh, in this uh, story that John's telling. Because verse 39 ends Jesus' public ministry. From this point, throughout the rest of the gospel of John, 
Everything's going to be done in private. Everything's going to be done in preparation for Jesus' sacrifice. The last thing he said was, I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Nobody has power to take it from me, but I lay it down and I can take it back up again too. So what he's going to say now is, I'm going to separate myself. What the Bible is going to indicate to us is that I'm going to separate myself now from public ministry. Public ministry meaning the, means the Jews. The Jews have finally, once and for all, rejected him, meaning the leaders of Israel. They have finally, once and for all, rejected him, so Jesus is going to go away. A couple of things you need to know. About the sheepfold, salvation is, is, is available for those that come out of Judaism. In the Old Testament, when God gave Moses instruction for the building of the tabernacle of the wilderness, there was a certain way that the camp was set up. The tabernacle of the wilderness was outside the camp. And it was set up in such a way, the book of Numbers tells you about this, it was set up in such a way so that if somebody wanted to really seek after God, they had to leave the camp of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel had certain places where they had to camp out and so forth. They had to leave the camp of Israel and come outside the camp to find where the presence of God was. Jesus is the fulfillment of that type. Secondly, John's gospel is the only one that identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. John, the author of the gospel that bears his name, was John the Baptist's disciple. And he was there and heard personally when John the Baptist looked upon Jesus as he came down the road and says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. John relates that to us and nobody else does. As the Lamb of God, the Lamb used as the type of the sacrifice for Israel all the way from the Passover all the way throughout, the, the sacrifice always had to be set apart for a certain number of days, for a certain period of time before it could be sacrificed because that separation is called sanctification. It had to be set apart or sanctified, examined, made sure that everything was right, everything was in position for it to be a worthy sacrifice. Jesus is going to withdraw beyond Jordan. He's going to withdraw outside the camp of Israel to fulfill the type of the sacrificial lamb. Verse 40. And Jesus went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. That means he lived there. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracles, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. Now, people came to him. It's not that his ministry is over. Oh, for goodness sakes, John chapter 11 is where he raises Lazarus from the dead. But it's the last time that he does anything publicly as far as Israel is concerned. Everything else is out in the wilderness, outside of the camp. Anybody that wants to find Jesus, hear Jesus, or see anything of his works has to leave that which represents Judaism and the law of Moses to come to find him. It's a turning point in Jesus' ministry. And it's during that turning point that we get some of the most intimate and personal information about Jesus and his disciples of any of the gospel writers. Make sense? John is trying to show people Jesus is not part of religion. Jesus is not was not part of Judaism. He was there to call people out of Judaism unto salvation. In the same way, in John's day, there was a religious faction that was setting up and organizing and so forth. He's telling them the same thing. You're not going to find salvation in the middle of your organization. You're going to find it one and only one way, and that's Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that Jesus is the door of the sheep and that in him we have found life more abundantly. 
Open our eyes, Lord, show us what that means so that we can live the abundant life in every aspect and every respect. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.